We've been in this series, this relationship series called Made for This. And so far, you've got to hear wise words from J.O. on parenting. You've got to hear the meaning and the, and the significance of fellowship, of friendship, of discipleship within the body of Christ from Craig. And tonight, I want to talk to you about something that isn't talked to very often from a pulpit. And, um, but I, but I, I must. I must. It's, it's been burning within me for months, maybe years, and it's never felt like the right moment. Uh, but our team released me this, this week uh, to share with you what's been stirring in my heart, and I believe that it is a word from the Lord for the church, not just Heart of the City Church, but for that church. Amen? You guys don't know yet. You're like, we hope. We hope, Seth. We hope you don't be preaching no heresy up in here now that we said amen. No, we're, we're going to stay tight to the scriptures tonight. We're going to be looking in two primary passages, Matthew 19 and 1 Corinthians 7. We're going to hear the words of Jesus and the words of Paul. Really, we're going to hear the words of God. Now, the book of Matthew is uh, Matthew the Disciples' gospel account. Matthew's focus appears to be really tailored toward Jewish people, um, really goes out of his way to show the Jews that Jesus was and is indeed the fulfillment of the Old Testament prophecies of the Messiah. You follow me? Now, in chapter 19, some Pharisees approach Jesus, and like they often do, they're there to test him and to trip him up in his words. They're, they're, they're trying to trap him in his words, and they ask him a question regarding marriage and divorce. Let's look at how Jesus and his disciples respond. Would you stand with me for the reading of the word? You know, um, you could look at the standing for the reading of the word as, as kind of an old school tradition, but I think it's an important reminder that these are the most important words that are going to be said tonight. Starting in verse 8, he said to them, Because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning, it was not so. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. Nice, some nice light reading to start, start the evening. Is, that, does, is everyone feeling cozy? <laughs> like Seth, are you going to here to encourage us? Yes, I'm here to encourage you, but... The truth is the truth. Verse 10, the disciples said to him, check out the disciples in this moment. Just get in their heads. If such is the case of a man with his wife, it is better not to marry. (laughs) Just think about that. Think about where the disciples are coming from when they say that. But he said to them, now here's the kicker. Some of you are about to get really uncomfortable because I'm going to say a word that we don't talk about a lot. Just get over it for a minute. But he said to them, not everyone can receive this saying, but only to those, only those to whom it is given. For there are eunuchs who have been so from birth, and there are eunuchs who have been made eunuchs by men, and there are eunuchs who have been made, who have made themselves eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. Let the one who is able to receive this receive it. Don't worry, we'll return to that. 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians is a letter written by, don't worry, um, well, I'm going to have you stand for a little longer, but we're going to read some more scripture. So 
It's a letter written by the Apostle Paul to the church in Corinth. Corinth, uh, in the ancient world, was a center for immorality and worldly living. I've actually been to Corinth. It's a little much, it's kind of a sleepy town now, but um, it wasn't like that back then. Paul's first letter to the church in Corinth brings correction to immoral behavior that had creeped its way into the local church. And in chapter 7, it appears by what he's saying that Paul is responding to a letter that was written to him written to him, and he's addressing the topics of sex and marriage. (laughs) He gives some instruction about how married people should conduct themselves, and then he turns to the topic of whether people should get married or remain single. Some more light reading for us. Starting in verse 6, now as a concession, not a command, I say this. I wish that all were were as I myself am. But each has his own gift from God, one of one kind and one of another. To the unmarried and the widows, I say it is good for them to remain single, as I am. But if they cannot exercise self-control, they should marry. For it is better to marry than to burn with passion. (laughs) We'll pause for a second. Paul then takes some time to address what to do in the case of an unbelieving spouse. And then he takes a whole paragraph to exhort the Corinthians to live as they are called. Now, Paul uses this paragraph to set up a dramatic return to this topic, to marry or not to marry. Picking back up in verse 25. Now, concerning the betrothed, the Greek word there is virgins. Now, concerning the betrothed, I have no command from the Lord, but I give my judgment as one who, by the Lord's mercy, is trustworthy. I think that in view of the present distress, it is good for a person to remain as he is. Are you bound to a wife? (laughs) That's an interesting way to say it. (laughs) Do not seek to be free. (laughs) Are you free from a wife? (laughs) Do not seek a wife. (laughs) It's Paul, y'all. I didn't make this up. But if you do marry, you have not sinned. Oh, praise the Lord. (laughs) And if a betrothed woman marries, she has not sinned. Ladies, you guys are good too. Yet those who marry will have worldly troubles. And I would spare you that. This is what I mean, brothers. The appointed time has grown very short. From now on, let those who have wives live as though they had none, and those who mourn as though they were not mourning, and those who rejoice as though they were not rejoicing, and those who buy as though they had no goods, and those who deal with the world as though they had no dealings with it. Really interesting. For the present form of this world is passing away. Now, I want you to be free from anxieties. Thank you, Paul. How do I do that? The unmarried man is anxious about the things of the Lord. How to please the Lord. But the married man is anxious about worldly things. How to please his wife. And his interests are divided. And the unmarried or betrothed woman is anxious about the things of the Lord. How to be holy in body and spirit. But the married woman is anxious about worldly things. How to please her husband. Now I say this for your own benefit. Not to lay any restraint upon you. But to promote good order. And to secure your undivided devotion to the Lord. You may be seated. 
Interesting, 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 interesting. Don't think I've ever heard that passage preached on a Sunday or a Saturday night before, but here we go. This is my task. Now, I've been pastoring here among you for about eight years now, and I've learned a lot during that time. When I first came on staff here, I was engaged to my now wife there on the front row. And um, my sights were pretty much singularly focused on marrying her. And if you knew me during that time, you know that I do not speak a lie. (laughs) I don't speak a lie. We got married three and a half months after my first day on staff. And almost immediately, we began being trained for marriage ministry. About two years into marriage... Two years, we took on the marriage ministry here at the heart. (laughs) We led that for about four years. Now, something shifted in me during that time as I gave a significant amount of my focus and I became a student of marriage. I realized that I had put marriage in the wrong place. I realized that when I was dating and engaged to Micaiah, even early in our marriage, that I had made marriage an idol. Do you know that you can do that? I'd accidentally and mistakenly put my wife in a position in my heart that she did not belong. I had looked to her to fulfill me, to satisfy me, and to complete me. Now those are things that only God can do. No human being will ever do that for you. I learned that the purpose and the value of marriage was, in fact, something very different than those things. And as I learned that difficult lesson, the Lord began to form a deep conviction in my heart through the scriptures that although marriage was and is a very important part of my story, the marriage is not for everyone. Now, as I learned this, in, in the midst of this learning process, I also came to the hard realization that I had been taking part of my story and letting it partially dictate my doctrine and my theology. Not only that, but as I considered my own well-intended but misguided projection, I'll say that again for everyone who thinks, whoever, for anyone who feels beat up by what I'm saying tonight, any married person, please don't. Well-intended but misguided projection. I saw that much of the church at large had done a very similar thing. As I've had conversations over the years with people who have never been married or people who have been widowed or divorced, I've heard time and time again how difficult church can be for them because they feel like the other. Ever had a conversation like that? Ever felt like that? Some of this happens for very practical reasons. A defense, as it were. All of the primary preachers and teachers here are married. Most of the American church over the age of 35 is married. 
Marriage is a common path, especially among believers. That being said, we must be careful not to take what is common and call it the standard, especially when God has not called it the standard. Now, I do want to address the elephant in the room. I am married. (laughs) And I love being married. And I don't know what it's like to be single beyond the season of young adulthood. I barely know what it's like to be single in the season of young adulthood. (laughs) To be fair, we were 22 and 19 when we got married. We wasted no time. That's my story. But my charge from the Lord is not to come up on this stage and tell you about my experience in life. That isn't my job. My charge from the Lord is to teach you what his word says and to shepherd you as you apply it to your life. So I want to draw us back to the word again. First, the words of Jesus in Matthew 19. See, Jesus is responding to the Pharisees Essentially, he tells them that divorce is not part of God's plan and that there are very few circumstances under which it is permissible to divorce and remarry. Someone should have told the United States of America that. Now, we get this very, very interesting response from the disciples, puzzling even. Well, if that's the case, Jesus, it's better not to get married. Like they often do, the disciples kind of missed the boat with this one. Kind of missed the point of what Jesus was saying. You mean if I can't get out of marriage easily? I don't want to get married then. Jeez, guys, not a good look for you. Not a good look. Jesus, you see, rather than directly rebuking them, he actually pulls some gold out of their very fleshy statement and says in his own way, well, you're not completely wrong. Then he uses this word that makes many of us a little uncomfortable. Eunuch. Or eunuchos in the Greek, which is a bit of a complicated word, actually, because it is used differently in different places in the scriptures. Sometimes referring to a very specific position of authority or duty. Sometimes referring to a person who has had their reproductive organs physically mutilated. Welcome to Saturday night. (laughs) But it is almost always used to refer to someone who is not able to have sex. However, In this passage, the historic church and most biblical scholars agree that in light of the scriptural context, in light of the conversation that Jesus is having, that he is using this word in three different ways, one of which is metaphorical in nature. He says that there are some that are this way from birth, speaking to a physical abnormality or a biological predisposition toward celibacy. Aren't you glad you came? Some have been made this way by men, speaking to an evil pagan practice of physical mutilation. 
and that some have made themselves this way for the sake of the kingdom of heaven, speaking metaphorically to a conscious choice to remain celibate. Seth, goodness gracious, why are we talking about this in church? We're talking about this because in this passage, I would argue that Jesus is speaking to the legitimacy of singleness. He's clearly not mandating it. Look at his pre-call. Not everyone can receive this saying, but only those to whom it is given. But he is also making room for it. Let the one who is able to receive this, receive it. Now, why do I take time to make this point? Why are we taking up a weekend with this, talking about eunuchs? Because I want to speak to every unmarried person in this room and let you know that Jesus has not disqualified you. He does not belittle you. And he does not count you as a second-class citizen in his kingdom. No matter what your experience has been in the American church, whatever tradition that you have faced, Jesus says otherwise. Now, maybe you're like me, and you need things to be extremely clear in the scripture for you to receive them fully. If you feel that this passage is not clear enough to come to a conclusion, I'm with you. But I believe that Paul's words in 1 Corinthians 7 will wash away all ambiguity on this topic. First of all, Paul begins with a similar tone as Jesus. He comes in making a pre-call to what he's about to say. He says that this is a concession and not a command. That is to say, this is advice from Paul and not a universal mandate. Do you hear that? This is advice from Paul, not a universal mandate. Now, what is Paul's advice? That it would be good for single people to remain single. <laughs> How does he qualify this statement? That each person has his own gift from God and that those gifts are different. That is to say, to some is given the gift of marriage and to some is given the gift of singleness. Now, he recommends singleness. Did you know that? <laughs> he recommends singleness, noting that he himself was single, but he also clearly allows for marriage. He then clarifies again that he is not giving a command from the Lord, but trying to give people wise counsel. What is this counsel? If you are married, stay married. If you are single, stay single. He clarifies that it is not a sin to get married. I'm so glad that he clarified that. Though he adds, if you do get married, you will have worldly troubles. Anyone going to try to disagree with him on that? If you do get married, you will be anxious about worldly things, like pleasing your spouse. He says that your interests will be divided. All the married people are like, wow, I'm, I just feel so good about this message right now. <laughs> really, really, really cozy and encouraged. And <laughs> he says that if you don't get married, you'll be able to dedicate yourself completely to holiness and to pleasing God. 
After saying this, Paul clarifies a third time because he knows how weird we can get with things. He clarifies a third time. I'm not trying to put a command, a restraint on you, y'all. Don't take this as that. This is the third time he's clarified that. But he says his intent is to promote good order and to secure people's undivided devotion to the Lord. He gives this counsel to promote good order and secure people's undivided devotion to the Lord. Now, what is the sense that we get from Paul here in regards to marriage and singleness? Is it anything like the sense that we get in the modern Western church? It appears that singleness is the advisable route, according to Paul, if that is the gift that God has given you. From what I read in the words of Jesus and Paul, I would submit to you that singleness is not the absence of something from a person's life. It is the presence of something very, very precious. And we need to treat it as such. What does the presence of that thing mean in a single person's life? It means that you are just as called. It means that you are just as qualified. It means that you are just as endorsed by Jesus as if you were married. It means that you have just as much access to God's heart as any spouse or parent. I can't tell you how many times I've heard things said and probably said myself at one time to some effect. Well, a person can't fully know the heart of God until they get married or until they have a child. Huh. First of all, (laughs) I'd love for you to try to convince Paul of that. Hey, Paul, I know God's heart better than you do, guy. That might sound romantic and poetic, but it is not sound doctrine. Just because that's part of your story or my story does not make it universal truth. I want you to imagine something right now. Go with me for a minute. Imagine how an unmarried person has felt every time that they have heard something like that said by a fellow believer. Someone who's meant to be single for life. Now imagine that they believed what you said. And what the consequences of that might be in their life. Everyone feeling good? I know this is hard because probably most of you are married. This message is primarily for singles in the room. And I will not apologize for that. You know why? Because they have set through plenty. They have set through plenty of messages on marriage and parenting. Y'all can sit through one on singleness. Marriage and parenting are very important. I'm glad that we preach on them here. I preached on them here. But there's a whole other part 
of the population of disciples of Jesus, a fully endorsed and recognized part. Now, but what I'm about to say now is for everyone in the room. When we project our story, please listen closely. If you're married and you've been tuning me out because you think this doesn't apply to you, please stop that right now. (laughs) When we project our story or our experience onto the formation of doctrine and theology without first pulling it through the filter of Scripture, we are in grave danger of believing wrongly about God, about ourselves and about other people, and then treating all of those as such. Our human tendency toward egocentrism, that is a view of the universe with me and my experience at the center, is not just an unfortunate trait. It is one of the single greatest threats to our love for God and our love for each other. I'll say it again. I know that there were some there were some big words in there. Our human tendency toward egocentrism, a view of the universe with me and my experience at the center, is not just an unfortunate trait. It's one of the single greatest threats to our love for God and our love for each other. And by the way, I'm the chief sinner. This isn't something that I have all figured out and y'all don't. Of course, there is power in the testimony and in personal stories. They have great value and they have their place. But their place is not in the determination of universal truth, especially if they are unaided and unsupported by the scriptures. After all, I think most of you in the room tonight will see who would agree with me that there is no such thing as your truth or my truth. There is only the truth. The truth. 